This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about the 2019 album Deserted by uh, Arizona death metalers Gate Creeper, who were a, a people from uh, who heard the last episode will recall were one of the bands recommended to me after I put, you know, asked listeners to recommend uh, newer bands and stuff. And yeah, you know, would absolutely one of the bands that I listened to I thought, yep, okay, let's talk about these people on the show. Yeah, I'm excited about that because it is, uh, I have found so much music through the recommendations of people from the show, but then also, even if a recommended band, I go to band camp or something and ah, they're not exactly my taste through through Bandcamp's sort of recommendation system, I have then found other bands. It's almost like tuning the dials where it's like, <laughs> oh, this one's just a little bit off for me, but oh, this one is exactly in my wheelhouse. And man, I, I would say Bandcamp is one of my biggest expenditures in the past year, just like scooping up albums on Bandcamp all the time. And uh, a lot of it has to do at least the beginning of those journeys with people making recommendations in our Facebook group. Absolutely. Although I will say that Bandcamp's algorithm recommendation engine is good. Like it is, you know, surprisingly better than a lot of them. Because yeah, I'm sure you know what it's like. You you'd get a lot of places like this or Last FM when it existed, uh, and even places like Spotify and YouTube. And it's like, yeah, this isn't. You know, your machine learning has gone a bit awry here. Right. But totally. Bandcamp's is really good, and I don't know if there's some human element to the curation and recommendations or something, but whatever system they use, yeah, it absolutely works. Cause I'm the same. I buy albums off Bandcamp all the time. Um, I mean, my own music is up on Bandcamp and that's partly because as I think I mentioned in the last episode, actually, because they are um, really artist supporting, you know, they're a proper indie run by musicians for musicians kind of company. And so I just like supporting them anyway, but, like I say, it also shows because, yeah, they recommend some really, really great stuff. But so do For our sure. listeners, as you say. I haven't, I haven't used their kind of, uh, I haven't invol- got involved in kind of the social community there, but I have, like, I'll buy merch through the band sites yep. on Bandcamp. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, and when I do buy albums, it's usually in clusters because I go down the rabbit hole and, f- and find like two or three different bands that are like, oh, okay. You know, and, and just the fact that you can listen to, almost all of the stuff on there like straight through unlike uh something like an amazon for example where you get a clip of a song or something like, you, you go listen to the album here and because uh you can do that like i'm so much more likely to then immediately buy it and be like yeah as soon as i listen to two or three songs i'm like yep that's that's me here you go <laughs> here's my you know however much and again speaking to artist friendliness Bandcamp gives you a lot of control over that stuff as well you can control uh how many times people are allowed to stream something on Bandcamp before you, they have to buy it. Like how many streams each person is allowed for free. Yeah, totally. You can uh, determine whether or not people are allowed to download it at all. Uh, you know, if they don't buy it, um, it's yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fine grained control of there. As I say, I really, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, and they are relevant to this discussion because gate creepers first EP, which was in 2015, I think. Um, I think you're right was released first on Bandcamp. Uh, and it was the release of that EP that got them a lot of attention and eventually got them signed to Relapse Records. Yeah. Um, so 
before we get into that, let's do our usual follow-up. Uh, we have several new patrons since the last episode, which isn't surprising because it's been a while. Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> it's uh, The world is kind of crazy at the moment, and it's weird. I am somehow have less free time now than I did before we were uh, all know, stuck man. at home all day. I yep. don't understand how that works. Um, anyway, so Sasha Brinkman, uh, Simone Canola, Neil Roberts, and Agnar Sidhu. Uh, thank you all very much for becoming welcome, patrons welcome. and supporting the show. Uh, we also have to tell people that if you listen to us through Google Play, that is the Google Play Store, um, they are apparently removing podcasts from the store and switching them all over to Google Podcasts, which is their new podcast-only platform instead. Now, we're already on Google Podcasts. Um I just checked today and we are actually, we're all, we're already there, but they are also encouraging like all podcast uh, owners and creators to switch over to podcasts. I don't know. And I can't seem to find out if that means that people who listen to us through, you know, subscribe to the feed in play will automatically get their feed changed to podcasts. Yeah. But let's be honest. I suspect not. So right. yes, <laughs> to be safe, safe to assume. No. Yeah. If you listen to us through the Google Play Store uh, feed, please switch over to the Google Podcasts feed instead because it will go away at some point in the future. I can't remember exactly when. You've got a few weeks, you know, you've got time, but please do make that switch as soon as you can. And I also read, and I haven't paid enough attention to it yet, but I definitely need to, that because YouTube music is replacing Google Play music at some point, that you need to like transfer over your library or something and so i have to look at that and see what that's all about because i have a ton of music like stored in google play music personally oh i didn't know yeah i missed that one i don't have any uh, music from the play store so uh or and i don't you know subscribe to youtube music or anything so yeah no me, me uh, do i uh, how unlike google to launch a service and then several years later abandon it never happens Right. And then they they let these things kind of grow side by side for long enough where people get entrenched in their own version of how they want to do things. And then they're like, oh, yeah, no, but we're going to drop this one. Yeah, we're pulling the plug. And it's like, uh, son of a... Again. Um, yeah. Also... As a, in... as a Stadia Founders supporter oh. who bought the... Yeah, I'm that guy. <laughs> now, I, I, now, here's Here's what guy I am. I'm the guy who bought... The Stadia founders pre-ordered it the day they announced Stadia, the day they had that first press conference, and also bought a second controller. So I have two Stadia controllers along with my Founders Edition, and uh, it's not terrible right now, but they have yet to even come close to delivering what that experience was that they talked about. What they promised, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know. Meanwhile, Google Wave users are sort of over in a corner just going, hello, remember us? Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> boring, more boring admin stuff. Um, Patreon supporters, we love you. Um, but we have to tell you that uh, Patreon are, because of new sort of laws, which are supposed to get around tax dodging by companies like Amazon and Facebook and what have you, um, as a result, some of you are going to find a small, I'm told it is a very small amount of tax added to your pledges, not just for us, for all Patreon stuff, um, starting in July. Now, there is a video that Jack Conti, uh, Patreon co-founder, 
put up on YouTube explaining all of this, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It's quite long and dry and what have you, but it does give you all the details you could need. Um, if you're in the EU, you're not affected because you've been paying VAT for like the last four or five years anyway. Um, but certain states in the US and certain countries outside of the US and EU um, will find a, as I say, I'm told it's a very small amount of, you know, some small tax payment that will be added to your pledges. So please just be aware of that. It's not us. We don't see any of that extra money, uh, you know, the, all 10 cents of it or whatever. Um, it's just, it's a legal thing that Patreon has to do, apparently. Was that your dog I just heard in the background? It probably was. Yep. <laughs> and he, he may, he may make an appearance <laughs> at some point <laughs> in the video. Uh, yeah, I Good. try to, that, that's one lovely thing. Not that it matters on a weekend about the apocalypse is, uh, with everyone being home now, I have so many meetings over the course of a day for my day job and trying to wrangle this house and have people be remotely respectful of time where there needs to be silence is, one of the biggest challenges. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just amazing. I, I so, feel yeah. for anybody with kids, uh, like right now who, you know, would normally be at school and are having to just cope with, yeah, an entirely full house. Um, yeah, tough. It, it's for us, you see, we're not affected. Well, I don't have kids, so it's not that different for us. We spend all day at home anyway, working and what have you. Um, but we can't get out as much as we normally would. And we have lots of um, elderly relatives and neighbors and what have you, you know, we're much more concerned about them, but not being able to get out of the house as much as we normally would is, you know, thank goodness we have a yard, basically. Thank goodness we have a nice English style garden, not very big, but it's ours and we can sit out there, you know, and be within the law (laughs) and shout over the fence to our neighbors. (laughs) Right. And I, and I live in the city and so, and I live, very close to a uh, a main street in the city. And so it, even though things might be a tad more distanced around here, and, and generally my neighbors and, and people around here have been okay and pretty respectful of the social distancing and, and things like that. We have a few on our street that are not really taking it seriously at all. But uh, even with that, the the sort of hum of daily activity around here has remained largely the same, just uh, a little bit further apart so (laughs) yeah yeah i mean and that's the other thing of course isn't it you know is the music industry is on hold the uh live circuit is completely just wiped out at the minute um gate creeper had a huge tour lined up throughout throughout europe for this summer and uh just completely cancelled a lot as has everybody else i mean and then not just them obviously i just mentioned them because they're the group on the show today but yeah, everybody's just cancelled everything. And for the for those bands who rely, and let's be honest, this is most bands these days, who rely on that income from gigging to survive, man, this has got to be such a difficult time. You know, it's going to make, I mean, it's really going to test those bands who say, oh, we're not in it for the money, we'd be recording music anyway, even if we weren't successful. Well, now we're going to find out whether that's true. Absolutely. And and just the, I mean, obviously you're seeing it right now, right? With people been posting it in the Facebook group with bands doing these sort of remote covers and remote acoustic versions of songs and, and things like that and figuring out ways to still try to connect with the audience and, and still try to 
um, you know, do creative things together and things like that. And I think that's going to continue to evolve as well. Right. You know, in terms yeah. of how, how concerts get presented, like, you know, ways to, that are going to spring up for people to monetize that and to create opportunities for bands to still play to a lot of people. And it'll just be interesting to see how all that kind of evolves because, you know, what we're seeing already is it's not like there's going to be uh, an end date to, Oh, we don't have to worry about this anymore. So everything's right. going to completely go back to normal. It is. Yeah, we're not all going to no suddenly, <laughs> we're not, we're not all going to suddenly wake up in like a month's time and be like, Hey, here's the vaccine. Everybody, you know, go back to work and forget this ever happened. That's not, that's clearly not going to happen anytime. So I'm sure it'll happen eventually, but not anytime soon. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, all arms of the entertainment industry are suffering in that way. I've got a novel coming out. My next novel comes out uh, next week on May the 25th. And all of the promotion for it is now online. Like 100%. I know I do a fair bit of online promotion anyway, because of the sort of generation of writer that I am. But yeah, now everybody's doing everything online. Uh, you know, making videos and doing blog tours and doing online interviews and Facebook live broadcasts and all that sort of stuff. It's, uh, I mean, it's kind of fun in a way because it's really democratizing. And the same with the musicians. Same with these musicians doing like uh, living room concerts, you know, tiny concerts from their living room and stuff. Is It has really brought home that, oh, these are people. These are real people who live in real houses and apartments uh in real places and they're just like you and i and they've got a photo of their dog on the wall or you know some silly print hanging off the bookshelf or whatever they are just and they they don't know how to use their webcams and right you know, or, or they film their their piece for this cover on their iphone right and, yeah. and you're staring up their nostrils the whole time or whatever totally. you know it's it's but it's in a way, you know, that's, I mean, God knows very, very little about this is good in any way, but I do like the fact that it has really brought out that sort of DIY aesthetic in every hundred oh, percent, dude. And I think what we're, what we're starting to see now is that in that way, music is starting to come into the existing space of like the Twitch streamer, right? Where we've yep. had that in video games and we've had that in you know, podcasts and video podcasts for quite some time now, music, it's not that it didn't exist there at all, but but it never really embraced that to the level I think you're going to see now. And so whether it is the existing channels that are out there, the YouTube lives, the Facebook lives, the Twitches, or we start to see something bubble up that is more specifically music focused, which is where I think you're going to see a, a lot of probably stops and starts with that, where, you know, people think they have the next big idea for that and they're going to they're going to try to launch these services, but it'll be interesting to see how that space evolves. Cause I definitely think we're at a place now where, you know, the making of videos and the behind the scenes, you know, uh, musician diaries that we've been seeing for the past several years, you know, when, when albums are being made, I think that's going to take a huge step forward into like the, you know, um, you being brought much more uh, deeply into that experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Well, I mean, we're again getting back to sort of uh, away from music from all, but uh, in books, we're doing a thing. May haha, is National Crime Reading Month here in the UK, which is a thing organised by the Crime Writers Association, uh, where its members, you know, like organise and promote 
book events and signings and appearances and and all and festivals and all that sort of stuff. And of course, you know, it's everything has been cancelled. Everything that was arranged for that is no longer happening. So, uh, and I'm on the I'm involved with the CWA. So we've instead uh, been again doing everything online. And one of those things is making videos. Uh, asking people to send in crime writer in residence videos, basically just people standing in front of their bookshelves and going, Hey, this is me. This is my book. Uh, this is what I do. This is my life during lockdown. And here's another book that I recommend you read. Uh, and they've been really popular and they've been really fun again, because everybody's just standing in their lounge (laughs) recording these things. And you do like realize, Oh yeah, these are real people. Um, but they've been so popular and so much fun that we're going to keep doing them. You know, well, we're, I, we're doing one a day during the the crime reading month, but for the we're just going to carry on doing them, not one every day, but every so often we're going to keep doing them because people seem to really like them and they're fun to do. And I think, and I know we're we're sort of going down the path here, but one of the things that I really like about that is that when you look at a platform like Twitter and how the initial positivity of having that increased access to creators seemed like a really positive thing and in some ways was a really positive thing, but over the years has really deteriorated to uh, to a pretty toxic place for a lot of creators to be uh, trying to connect with people, right, uh, and have to deal with that. I think here's another sort of pivot point where we're rethinking how can we connect with our audiences in different ways and in a way that continues to bring the people who really care about it and and want to have a positive experience with us and sort of leaves behind a lot of the toxic stuff. And so I think that uh, that is something that's also um, throughout all of these situations that we're seeing kind of being dealt with. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about if anybody was contemplating launching some kind of, yeah, like, like Twitch, but specifically for musicians uh, platform. But now that you mention it, it seems like a really, really obvious thing. And I'm actually surprised that it hasn't happened already or at least that so you know so nobody's made a big splash with it already because i haven't heard of anybody or doing that things like, it dude, seems like a really good idea like uh like let's say in cities like new york right like having a venue that is completely set up to broadcast live shows and uh, to stream live shows and is specifically designed to do that but it's something where they can invite a band in you know, at some point, obviously not this second, but at some point where they can create kind of a controlled environment, um, if it's a place that needs to be cleaned sort of in between show or whatever it is, but basically creating a venue where, hey, if you're a New York area indie band or something like that, you can come to this venue and basically live stream a concert. And we'll help you do that, and we'll take care of the technical side of that. We'll put it out there. Fans who want to watch concerts through this venue can subscribe through this monthly thing, or maybe it's a Patreon thing or whatever it is, buy tickets for specific uh, sort of events. But during the event, you know, we'll help you sell merch through your online store or something like that. But, But essentially, like, figuring out ways to help bands and musicians who are not going to be don't either don't have the means or don't have the you know the the technical skills at this point to to do all that themselves to make those things happen and i think so there are going to be other opportunities that come out of this for people to problem solve and figure out ways to make this happen and to to continue to share music because it's not like the lack of live concerts means that we're not going to we're not going to share live music anymore. Like that's right. Or that we don't, or that we suddenly stop listening to music. It's totally. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, That's not going to happen. 
virtual reality yeah. is a whole other discussion about how, how to incorporate that moving forward too. But as that becomes democratized and as that becomes more affordable for people, there's going to be completely different, you know, experiences waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're right. There, there's a, there's a little bit of optimism. I hope that you're right. That something like that, you know, some good does come out of it. Uh, Cause anything that can support bands making a living by delivering their music to more people, can only be a good thing basically what i'm saying is just turn the live feed on dave mustaine to the to the <laughs> studio so that when you guys get in you start recording i just want to i'll just pay for 24 hour access i just want to be part of the i just want to see the recording sessions all that just make it happen yeah there you go there's your megadeth reference to the episode there you go probably not the last one uh, no. <laughs> uh anyway as as i said yeah it has been a while since our last episode uh so Sorry to everybody um, for that delay, but here we are at last. Um, and that was, well, of course, that kicked off Volume 5, as we said at the time. Like, incredible to think that this is Volume 5 of the show. Um, with the creator, Gods of Violence album, which I'm still listening to. I don't know about you. Um, Dude, such a it's good in regular rotation. It's amazing. And uh, it seems to be very positive feedback overall. Uh, from people just looking back at the Facebook comments, David said, this is a band I've always meant to check out, but never got around to it. Really looking forward to this. Uh, Andy said, without even listening, this is such a Brian pick. Newer effort by a classic band, a la Wind Hands Down from Armored Saint, Battering Ram from Saxon, Blood In, Blood Out from Exodus, etc. So he he pretty much nailed that. It was absolutely a uh, a classic band, modern, kick-ass album sort of pick for me. Yeah. Uh, Marcus said, extremely great album. I'm not writing this as a German. I'm writing this as a not any more metalhead since 1991, but not ignorant. But I must write, this is one of the best, at least, metal albums I have ever heard. So he's wow. pretty stoked about that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tordeth said, awesome. Creator is amazing. Um, Dave said, everyone, everyone talks about the big four, but as a metal fan... I love to categorize. I've always searched for the next four, but there are really only three Exodus, Overkill, and Testament. But there is a four and four of Voivod, Celtic, Frost, Sepultura, and Creator, who were as influential in the metal scene, if not as prominent in the world at large. Of those four and four, Creator is the one I've spent the least time with. So I'm looking forward to this. I know there was the Teutonic big four of Thrash. Yeah. And I can't remember all four of them off of there, but Creator is considered to be part of the the Teutonic, yes. uh, the big four. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, we could talk for days about the, the, in the U S sort of what comes after the big four, or why wasn't it a big five or why wasn't it? And it, it, it's yeah, <laughs> I think we talked about this before to me. It's all so arbitrary. And the, the fact is that there are probably like, you know, 40 bands in that who should all really be recognized as absolute Absolutely. influencers on the genre in that period of like, you know, mid eighties to early nineties. Um, it's just, obviously that's too many bands for most people to put in a list. So. Well, <laughs> or to go I, on tour I, together. <laughs> a lot of that too had to do with, and, and this didn't just happen in thrash, but it happened in hair metal, which is obviously a huge genre for me. A lot of it depended on when people got their record deal. Mm, and yep. when they got that first album out and that and all it took was a little delay in that process. And the Exodus has is a great example of that where you kind of miss the bus on being considered one of the pioneers, even though right. yep. those were all your contemporaries during that time. And that same thing happened 
with a lot of the bands out of um you know out of LA and it all just depended on when they got their their record deal and some of them didn't get their record deal until the late 80s and ended up putting that first album out at the end of the hair metal era and yeah, they just well, came in too late and they got caught up and and basically were in and out because they they didn't get that record deal ahead of time although you know let's also not forget that there have been bands in every scene who have in every scene that engenders a gold rush there have been plenty of bands who've been signed immediately and frankly weren't ready and actually probably could have done with waiting six to 12 months before getting signed because they then put out an album that is not very good and they kind of disappear without trace and that, that happens in every scene so i think the you know if there's a lesson there it's just you've always got to be you've got to know i think when you're ready to put something out uh and that's a really tough as a musician as an artist that's a really tough thing to decide to have that kind of self-judgment um accurate self-judgment anyway i should say and think okay yeah actually we're ready to do this right um because you know we all we can all think of bands who clearly weren't quite (laughs) ready to do it and probably should have waited a little bit well and i'm by no means an expert on sort of the hair metal sunset strip scene there but what what feels like happened that was kind of maybe even a little bit unique to that particular time is for so many of those bands the record label scene didn't come on until a lot of those bands had really honed their first batch of songs on the strip oh yeah and so a lot of bands in the hair metal era it was hard to find a bad first album so everybody was ready for that first album because they had been honing those songs in in the clubs for years and years and years it was the second album that proved what you're talking about where yeah, that first album you know, was their they, entire set. <laughs> exa- that's exactly right. And so that first album, so you could during there was a period of time where like everybody's first album was amazing. It was like, and it was the era where I was literally buying everything every week. I would I worked at a grocery store. I would cash my check, and the music store was in the same plaza as the grocery store. And so I'd cash my check at the grocery store, and my friend and I would go, and we would split that week's new releases, and we'd go over and we'd buy everything that came out. And that it was an amazing time where almost every album we purchased that was the first album of a band was fantastic. And it was the second album a couple of years later or a year later that you really separated, you know, which bands were going to stay and which bands were not. And, and it was what you talked about. It's like, they had nothing beyond that first set. Yeah. And so once that first album was out, it was like, what are we, we have to write all new songs now for, for a second album. <laughs> yeah, well, and then it just, <laughs> the second albums were terrible for a lot of them, but the first albums, man, because they had just, that scene was just so huge. Everybody had six or seven really good songs that they were ready for that first album for. And it was, uh, it, that, that was one of the reasons it cemented my love of that era. Well, and, you know, let's be right. There are plenty of bands out there who don't have any great albums. So even one, even if only your first album is truly great, that's, you know, that's absolutely. not bad. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> <It's> still something. <laughs> uh, diving back into the comments here. Let's see. Uh, Art said, thanks again for another great episode and for being the first to shout out to. The first to shout out to. Um. As for the bands, Anthony mentions at the end, Chronosphere is from Greece and suffers from their lack of proper English lyrically, so I can't imagine them ever being covered uh, on the show, I believe he's saying. Havoc should definitely be covered, uh, though, and Conformicide, I think, is a modern-day thrasher piece. I'm interested to, to see more of the reactions to um, Havoc's latest album, which I absolutely adore. 
some people are uh, a little bit hot and cold on it. He said, Ultraviolence, I do think Brian would like. They are Italians that also suffer from dodgy English lyrics and have a track called Why So Serious that takes all the Joker dialogue from Dark Knight and builds a song around them. (laughs) I didn't even know that. Uh, He said, last but not least, I was hoping with the mention of Testament that Anthony would segue into next week's homework. I would say at this point, Testament is the most anticipated band. <laughs> it's, it's the Great White Whale, isn't it? It's it the is band the Great we, White Whale. The band we keep saying we're definitely going to do a Testament episode, and, well, but yet still haven't. <laughs> no, and here's the thing, and I think I posted in someone's response to this in the, in the thread, but the thing about Testament is this. There will 1,000% be a Testament episode. I can honestly tell you that Anthony and I have not talked about when, nor have we talked about what album either of us would choose in that. And so that's the big issue, isn't it? It is the big issue. And it's almost like, I know for me, like I don't want to waste that pick, yeah, uh, you know, and and (laughs) pick like one, because I, I suspect that whatever albums we would pick would be very different in from their catalog and which one we would, we would uh, sort of settle on. And so, well, but even you and I, even <clears throat> not even sort of talking about, okay, well, you might prefer prefer one kind of album and I prefer a different kind of album, but even I myself, and I'm sure it's the same for you, there are five Testament albums yes. that I could pick and they're all wildly different and yep. they're all great and they're all worthy of being talked about. But it's like, well, hang on, they're all from wildly different periods of this band's Absolutely. history. Like, how do you pick one? It's crazy. Yep, like I could totally do, much like this Creator album, like newer kick-ass album from band that's been around for a long time. I could easily go back to early days. There's a period in between that I suspect you may pull from that is not my cup of tea uh, that Testament sort of went into for a little while. Right, but the sort of low demonic era. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, I love which those is albums. Not, yeah. Which is kind of where I fell off of them for a while. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that is the the big sort of conundrum with, with the Testament album is that, yes, it's coming at some point. It will be a surprise to either one of us the day that one of us picks that <laughs> yeah. Testament album. Um, and probably a relief, too, uh, at that point in time. But yes, there it, it, is, uh, it is something that is always there. And... Is is that sort of great white whale of this podcast now, which is kind of fun in a way, as frustrating as it might be to not have had that episode yet, because there are certain bands that I think for a show like this, you would expect us to have hit on at some point in time. And I think Testament is on the very short list of bands that in terms of kind of the classic era have not been talked about. Yeah, so, that you would absolutely expect us to do that we haven't been For yet. sure. And, yeah, we and acknowledge then, that. And then once we get past that initial group that everybody would expect us to have talked about, like we're done with it. So it's kind of cool that we have this, you know, one that we know is still out there, yeah. uh, that people still have something to look forward to from from that particular uh, group of kind of must have bands. <laughs> but we will get there eventually. We will. Well, we will totally get there. Uh, so back to creator Phil said, "This is most definitely not in my wheelhouse, but there are some great elements that even I can appreciate: blistering, aggressive riffs." There are enough hooks in some of these tracks to keep me listening to some of them. But whereas Anthony says that uh, they don't cross the border into Goblin Thrash, my first reaction was, uh, Goblin Thrash. Uh, <laughs> as usual, a great episode and much appreciated during this zombie apocalypse. And so, uh, yeah, I don't feel like they fall into the Goblin 
thrash. No, I, I think Phil's on his own there. I, yeah. you know, I, I don't think any, neither of us and nobody else that I saw commented would disagree that, you know, yes, they're edging up to it. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, I don't think they, they cross the line and that's mainly down to Millie's vocals, which are, yeah, you know, again, bordering on it, but not quite hitting it because there's so much aggression and yeah. project projection behind them as well. Um, that, yeah, I just, you know, I don't think they fall into it. But, you know, that's Phil. <laughs> uh, Kenneth said, it's great to have you back. The show had all the enthusiasm that I love. Just the excitement was very obvious for both of your love for this album. Uh, in excitement, I just don't share. <laughs> <laughs> he said there's nothing he said there's nothing bad going on it's almost a perfectly executed album but thrash isn't something i enjoy much anymore uh that's interesting right and i think that we could have a whole discussion on what you love about thrash right because for me and this has come up a lot when i've been listening to some more recent albums that i've picked up there's a very particular brand of thrash that i adore and it's it's that late eighties, early nineties sound for me. When I think of thrash, that's what I think of. I, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And so you could play me some different types of thrash and I would tell you, yeah, maybe I'm not much of a thrash fan anymore. I just know exactly what part of that genre I like. And I think it's wide enough where it may not be so much that you're not a thrash fan anymore. It's just that there's, there's maybe a lot out there that doesn't fit into the particular type of thrash that you like. And that that's definitely for me. And what I'm finding, especially through Bandcamp and things like that, is that, man, there are a lot of bands that are still making the exact kind of thrash that I like. And I'm discovering new <laughs> ones all the time. And it's blowing me away because that era of thrash is alive and well. And it's so great to be able to explore it through these new bands right now. So I would, I would highly recommend Bandcamp for really just kind of digging into the tuning those dials. As I mentioned of like, what, what sound exactly are you looking for? There are bands out there that are making that. It's much like podcasts, right? There's a podcast for everything Uh, in the age of Bandcamp and people being able to put their music out there and, and really, um, there's a band for everything as well. There is a band for everything, dude. And, and you can tune those dials to exactly the sound that you want to hear. And you'll find not just one, but probably several bands that are putting out new music that are right in your wheelhouse. Even if it's not the most popular, sort of flavor of the day in terms of the mainstream for sure i think also thrash modern thrash bands have a a fairly unique problem within metal because if you're a throwback stoner band like a sabbath style stoner doom you know that kind of era of doom band um everybody acknowledges that that was the start you know that was like it, it it's yes it's suffused in history but by definition, you are a retro band, you know, that's like, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's, you know, you are clearly harking back to that early seventies, the very beginnings of what we now properly call heavy metal. Thrash was the first metal scene, movement, subgenre, call it what you will, all of those things, I suppose, that changed what metal was. Like, Nwobin was great. And it was a, it was a genuine movement, but it didn't change really what metal was. It had been slowly, it was just basically kind of sped up 
uh, you know, traditional metal. Um, and then thrash came along and it was completely different. And I know they were all influenced by those bands and especially the Nwobben bands, but it changed. It didn't sound like any of them and it changed the scene and it changed metal forever. And all the similar genres that have come after that have also changed metal and there have been plenty of them, but they weren't the first thrash was the first. And so I think if you're a modern thrash band, there is such a weight of history and nostalgia and expectation from old farts like us who remember thrash the first time around, um, that it's really, really difficult. Are you going to be a retro band? Well then, but then you can be dismissed as not doing anything new. And the whole point of thrash was that it did new things. But if you do stuff too new, well then are you still a thrash band? Do you still sound like thrash it's really tough for those bands i think yeah it is there is a weight there as you mentioned i think and i think for a lot of these bands the ones that stand out are the ones that are navigating it right where they they are respectful of their roots but also kind of blazing some new paths there um but even the ones who are even the ones who are sort of a throwback to those times they're not exactly the same. Like I do, I I, do, oh, no, but I I feel like they're figuring it out more now though. I feel like there's more bands now that are hearkening back to those early days of thrash in a confident way uh, and not worrying so much about that. They're sort of still being able to kind of find their space within it and doing it in a way that navigates it really well. Cause I think for a while the pendulum swung to get away from that sort of retro feel right and and really try to create something new or or stake out new territory within thrash and i think it's swung back to the middle a little bit where it's like it's okay to you know to kind of build on that original foundation you're not you you know there's more of a respect for it now even though like that's uh, true yes for for a while i feel like it kind of got away from that even though everyone would be like of course the big four of course the the early thrash bands there was this tendency to like not want to sound like them uh and and want to you know, be, be even more down tuned and even more heavy and even more. And, uh, and so I think we're swinging back a little bit, which is good because that's where my tastes lie. So I, I'm kind of happy with where things are progressing right now. So here's the other thing about that. That's just occurred to me. And that is, well, say it's occurred to me before, but I think I can sort of articulate it now. The progression of technical ability in even the most basic of bands is extraordinary in the last 30 or 40 years. And I compare this to, uh, sports athletes and sports people. Uh, you look at the records in the NFL, for example, you know, for things like longest throw, longest kick, uh, you know, like most starts for a quarterback, that sort of thing. They're constantly being, all these records are constantly being smashed. And you look back now at the the players that we thought were the absolute pinnacle of their position, you know, the amazing athletes in the eighties, and they they can't hold a candle to even you know a third string running back or whatever in the I don't know, God in the Cleveland Browns or something. Now it's everybody, even the most basic level, is way way above the top players from those past eras and everything's relative they were still the top players of those past eras they're still legends same goes for those bands you know you listen to you know th- think back to how it was when you first heard the riffs on kill em all 
or, you know, Ride the Lightning especially. And you were like, my God, I've never heard anybody play the guitar like this before. It's incredible. How does any, listen to, imagine, you know, the first Slayer album, the drumming. You're like, how does anybody drum like that? That's, it seems inhuman. And now your most basic bar band in Midwest America has got a drummer who could play the whole of Rain in Blood back to front without breaking a sweat. And that it's, one is one that I want to that I want to touch on because I remember the first time that I heard Dave Lombardo's drums, and that broke my brain. Right, like there, when when you first heard Slayer, and you heard Lombardo, you were like, "That's not that dude is not even human." That's he's, what I mean. He's like exactly. he's an octopus. He is like no. He, there was such a separation between someone like a Dave Lombardo and everyone else at the time. Um, and I know everybody's going to have their own be like, no, there was this guy and there was this guy, but it was a situation back then where, like you said, there was, there was a real separation between like true masters of their instrument yeah. and like everybody else. And that mastery over the past few decades has just grown so much now where, you know, even back in the hair metal days, like everybody had one guitar player, the lead guitar player, who was the shredder, the maestro, the, the right. you know, the, the, uh, and then, and there was such a drop off between that person and the rhythm guitar player yeah. that when you, when you had a band like Judas Priest, where you had Glenn, you know, Tipton and KK Downing, and you essentially had two lead guitar players. It was amazing. Was, yeah. It was amazing because you were like, holy shit, like, how did they get two of these guys in the same band? That's unbelievable. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. That that level of mastery has come up so much that it's not. Well, it I doesn't think it, stand out anymore to be right. That and, guy. And I, but I think it makes it more difficult. The reason I mention it in this context is I think it actually makes it more difficult to be that kind of building on the foundations style band nobody is ever going to sound like 1983 metallica again partly because of recording techniques i mean you'd you'd have to deliberately you know (laughs) just ruin your recording takes and stuff to get that kind of sound uh quality that they had back then but also because like i say every guitarist in a band can play that stuff now it's no longer the pinnacle and while not every songwriter wants to be technically brilliant and play, you know, the absolute most difficult thing they can, who's going to think of writing songs in that vein without fearing that they'll be accused of not trying hard enough? Like, that's why, again, it's it's really tough for those bands, I think. Well, and that, to me, um, goes back to, like, what are the things that stand out for me that I that I like that are in my wheelhouse? You know, the melody, the the riffs, the groove, the hooks, that kind of stuff. Um, that's where, for me, a lot of those bands separate themselves now, is the ability to still yes. create those hooks in a way that does stand out. Because there is, I feel like nowadays, and it's obviously because I'm an old fart now, there is, but I think partially to what you're talking about, it's even easier to sound like everybody else. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because everybody can play, everybody can create at that high level of technicality. So many less stand out, like the things that made Exodus and Megadeth and Metallica and Testament and Slayer different in Anthrax before. It's so easy for those things to disappear now, 
you know. Right. And, and, but what uh, remains, as you say, is good songwriting, you know, and right. I've banged this drum many, many times on this yep. show before, you know, what will always remain is write a good song. Yes, absolutely. Which is, okay, well, let, let's get into uh, Gate Creeper then, because that is something that, I mean, that I personally think they do, but also that I know they strive to do. I read a few interviews with uh, the main songwriter, which is Eric Wagner, the guitarist, and he writes most of the music for the band. And he's been very explicit that that's what he's trying to do, that he doesn't play at a million miles an hour. Uh, and he sort of self-effacingly puts it down to a lack of ability. But, you know, having seen a few videos of them live, I don't think really, <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Right. I think that is self-effacing. But he does very specifically try to write good hooks and he wants to write songs with good hooks and good choruses and that you can kind of, you know, that are memorable, that stick in your mind, that you can sing along to. Uh, and it's it feels like that actually is enough in some ways to make them stand out. And maybe that's why that first EP got them so much attention because in that scene, the death metal scene, especially there is a tendency for some, probably not the bands, but for some listeners to almost look down upon bands who dare to, uh, yeah, to have a chorus that you can sing along with or whatever, and to write sort of memorable hooky riffs. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I will echo you know, the fact that from a hook and riff standpoint, this band stands out because there are elements of this band that are not at all to my musical tastes. But the fact that there are those hooks there and there are those riffs there and they're not just playing a million miles an hour or, or trying to be the heaviest thing ever or like it, it is the songwriting that actually keeps me enjoying this band because I do enjoy this album. and. uh but probably for very different reasons than some other people who are really going to like this album. Yeah. Um, and it is because of that. It's because there's some really good songwriting in here and some really good hooks that stay with you and keep me coming back to, to sort of listen again and again. They're, they're a very interesting band. And what I did not realize as we go into, you mentioned uh, Eric Wagner. So um, the band at, at the time so of this album, Oh, before we get, I've just realized, actually, I forgot to do the usual mid-show spiel before we get into the uh, band per se. So let me just say, if you uh, thank you to everyone who commented on the creator show post. And if you want to go and become join the group, become part of that community, it's at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, and remember, if you want to also support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash thrash it out nice easy urls for everybody to remember so go on you were saying about the band the lineup uh yeah so the lineup at the time uh was chase mason on vocals uh eric wagner on guitars sean mears on bass matt arabello on drums and nate garrett also on guitars what's interesting about nate garrett so this band the uh gate creeper was almost like a shared band with another band called spirit adrift yeah. And Spirit Adrift, their last album, which is something in darkness. I'll have to look up the title. But the last album from Spirit Adrift is flat out amazing, and I adore it. Oh, wow. I, I'm su I'm surprised that you like it. I quite like it, but I'm surprised you do as well. Is it Divided by Darkness? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's freaking awesome. 
Um, and they remind me a lot on that album of Haunt, who I absolutely adore as well. And it was another, this was all a band camp, you know, uh, <laughs> situation for me. But what I had no idea of was that there was overlap with Gate Creeper. And so when uh, I started. A lot of overlap, yeah. A yeah. lot of overlap. And so, but what's interesting is that since this album came out, that overlap is no more. So uh, it is right now uh, Garrett, the uh, Nate Garrett, the guitar player, who is sort of the creative mind behind Spirit Adrift. He has left Gate Creeper to focus entirely on Spirit Adrift. And Chase Mason and uh, Eric Wagner, who both also played in Spirit Adrift, have now left to just focus on Gate Creeper. Yeah, uh, and, I, I read an interview with Garrett where he said that he, it was all completely amicable. It was just yep. that both bands, because I also saw an interview where they were still together and they were talking about how they divide their time up between yeah. the two bands. I, Apparently I they have the same, same agent. Yeah, um, uh, but they got to a point where the, both bands just had too much on. And yes, yeah, Spirit Adrift has always been Nate Garrett's baby and Gate Creeper has always been Chase Mason's baby. And so... I think uh, in the interview I read, Garrett referred to it as we had a very adult conversation <laughs> about it. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and if you listen to both, I mean, the very different musical styles between yeah, yeah. those uh, two bands, but, and I'm glad it ended amicably, but it was just so interesting to me that, I mean, you've got Chase Mason, the vocalist of Gate Creeper, who's playing bass in Spirit Adrift, right? And they're just this, uh, how they were able to balance that, write songs that were such different so different yeah. you know styles and uh, well everyone in the band uh not maybe not now but certainly up until let's say a year ago literally every single person in gate creeper was also in at least one other band right um and it just seems to be that kind of scene they're from arizona uh the sonoran desert which is why uh their first album was called sonoran deprivation and they're part of the there's a, apparently i've never been to arizona but i am i gathered from interviews with them that there's a big hardcore metal scene in arizona and there's loads of crossover within it there aren't enough it's a big scene but it's not big enough to be two separate scenes you and i talked about this when we were growing up like there weren't enough people who were into non-mainstream stuff right. to each have our own little clique. So instead we all just hung out together and went to all the same shows and what have you. And it seems like that's the same with this scene in Arizona. And whenever you get a scene like that, you get an incestuous, everybody's in two or three bands. Yeah. All the bands are completely different because everybody listens to loads of different stuff. I think it's a really healthy way to, to, for a scene to be. Um, but it does mean that, yeah, you get, situations where you get what are essentially the same lineup in two different bands yep. and yet playing completely different music well and i think you're seeing that in california and new york as well and it's and it is uh, to me as you just said i find it exciting right because what happens is that you if you start following the path of one of these bands you're going to run into these side uh, other bands that yes. members are involved into and that is that is pretty much what i was talking about earlier when we talked about like tuning the dials to find the one that's right for you that that's where i found some of these interesting connections of like okay that one now nah, not so much but this one holy crap yes and then you find out oh well the guitar player from this one plays in this band over here oh, oh yep that that's really good too and i really like that and so it is kind of this really cool um cross-pollination thing going on where you can you can find multiple bands that all of these guys are involved into. And at least a couple of them are going to be right in your wheelhouse. And that's, 
super exciting. And, um, and I also think when you look at some of these projects too, a lot of these projects started out as one person who was doing all the instrumentation, doing all the songwriting, doing everything in a, in a studio, you know, home studio, whatever. And it got popular enough where they wanted to start playing out. And so they had to get band members and that's where a lot of these kind of overlaps start to happen. And then new relationships are formed and stuff like that. And so there's so much stuff on like a band camp right now that you see it's, it's sort of the brainchild of this one person that starts to get momentum. And often those people have six or seven different types of projects. And one of them really takes hold and starts to grow, you know, and in this case you had spirit adrift and gate creeper that started to grow enough that the overlap couldn't be sustained forever. Yeah. Well, even, I mean, you, you say it's, it's seems odd that a vocalist here might be playing bass in another band. You've got the complete opposite situation with the bassist of this band. Sean Mears is the vocalist in, or was the vocalist in one band before Gate Creeper where that exactly that happened. I had the two bands and then Gate Creeper was the one that took off and his other band, yep. I think it was called territory, uh, you know, kind of fell by the wayside, but he's now has another band where he's the vocalist. Um, and it's, it's like, and you know what else is what? cool though? Is like this, this, not to keep, you know, Bandcamp is going to become the new drinking game on yeah, this show, but what's, Bandcamp, cool, yeah. but what's cool about that is it allows for testing and iteration on a scale and, and with a speed that wasn't possible before. True. And so these guys can dip their toe into several genres that they're interested in and really, you know, put out an EP and let people listen to it, see if it gets any traction, see what the feedback is on that and, and test this stuff out until they find the one that's going to actually gain momentum. And that to me is also super cool because it means that they get to learn faster and they're wasting less time on projects that aren't going to be, um, you know, the thing that helps them be successful and they, they're able to find that thing quicker or at least yeah. latch onto something quicker. And then as that evolves, they're able to move over here quicker because, you know, it's not about, well, I left this band, but now I got to try to find a record deal with this new band. And now it's like, no, I left this band, but while I was still with this band, I put out the EP for this other project that I'm working on and it got, you know, super popular. And so I knew it was something worth investing more of my time into. And now I'm over here and it's like seeing that almost happen in real time is kind of amazing it's it's a whole new world isn't it yeah compared to how things used to be run yeah another thing that i like about it uh and that i like specifically actually about the people in this band that i've read interviews and seen interviews with is that they are absolutely not afraid to talk about the non-metal music that they love or even the non-death metal uh, music that they love and their influences like i've read and seen interviews with chase malone and with eric wagner talking about everything from rap to glam metal to power pop to mainstream rock bands they clearly don't care about having to live up to some purist ideal and i really like that because that is again that's quite refreshing in a band that is as heavy and as you know sort of underground death sounding as this where the scene can be a bit purist and they clearly just don't seem to care (laughs) about projecting that image Um, it is awesome because it brings me back to the early days of mtv where everything was all mashed together and that was how i grew up listening to music and developed such a wide sort of spread of the things that interested me And then it very quickly started to become segmented again. But there was a time where it was everything kind of mashed together. And that was a great 
and, and to see that coming back around now where, you know, people are less concerned. And again, it may just be because they don't, they can let the music speak for itself, right? They don't have to. Right. Well, when you've got music, again, as I say, this heavy and this very obviously paying homage to, you know, the original Floridian and Swedish death metal sounds, you kind of don't have anything to prove when you're executing it this well. Right. Um, I mean, I saw one piece with Matt Arebolo where he was asked to pick his like three favorite albums of all time or something. And yeah, two of them were heavy metal albums. And you know what the other one was? It was the greatest hits of the Eagles. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, and this was for like a drum for a blog talking about drums, metal drums. And I'm like, okay, that's a man who clearly is not worried. And Matt Ribolo was one of the founders of Gate Creeper. And there's clearly a man who is not worried about, you know, projecting a cool image. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I really, uh, I did knew nothing about this band until I'd never even heard of them until one of our listeners uh, recommended them to me. And uh, I'm really glad they did because, yeah, I, I like this band. It's, we'll get sort of onto the album in detail uh, shortly, obviously, but I will say it's not, I don't think this is a perfect album by any means. No. But I am really excited to see, to watch them develop. I hope that they continue to you know be successful and to develop because i i have a feeling that in one or two albums time they might produce something that i yeah. would regard as an as a truly great album you can uh, that's a great point and you can see it right you could see all the ingredients here and so i think it's going to be interesting to see which pieces they carry forward and yeah. which pieces sort of drop off of their sound and they're probably, they might even be different pieces that the two of us really uh, would kind of like to see them hold on to or, or sort of build on. <laughs> but yeah, um, a couple quick quotes from interviews that I pulled. You know, you mentioned we probably ended up looking at the same ones, but there was an interview with uh, a site called Clairvoyant back in 2016 with Chase Mason, the vocalist. He seems to be the guy that most people interview, although I did see a couple of those inter- video interviews with multiple members of the band. But uh, the question was, how did you first get into death metal? And he said, I think my gateway into death metal was probably at the gates, Slaughter of the Soul. I thought that was interesting. Um, oh, wait, that was an album that uh, we did on a listener show, on a yes. patron show, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. That was, uh, hang on, where is it? it where is it? The, was it the first one? Uh, it might have been actually, hang on a second. Um, all right. As you look for that, I'm going to read the next quote from him. Uh, uh, people may not know, but he struggled with heroin addiction before. And so one of the things, um, that they talk about is that it seems like addiction is one of the main themes in especially the first album's lyrics. And he said, yeah, I got off drugs before gate creeper started. I actually just had my four year sober anniversary, on the 11th of whatever month it was that he was getting interviewed. So this was he basically stuff that he was struggling with prior before prior to coming into Gate Creeper, but certainly affected some of their lyrics, at least early on. I don't see it as much on the newer album, although there is a song that I feel like uh, hits on that. That'll be interesting. I think there is as well. So it'll be interesting to see if we've picked the same song as being the one about his drug addiction. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it was It was our first Backstage Pass episode with CJ Lyons, Slaughter of the Soul, at the gates. Yeah, wow. There you go. A heavy influence on Gatekeeper, at least the, the lead vocalist there. There was a 2019 interview with a site called Metal Wanderlust, and they just asked him to kind of generally speak about the album. And he said, we wrote for probably a year between touring and things like that. Since this is our second full length record, this was the first time that we were able to sit down and write an album as a whole. 
our first full-length, Sonor and Deprivation, some of those songs were written when we first started the band. It was kind of a progression. We just started writing songs when we started the band because we needed to have new songs. So we just kept writing, and then eventually they had enough to make an album. For this album, he said we were going to write a full-length album, so the songs are specifically for the album. We looked at our last record and, and saw where we wished we could do more of this or liked parts of that and wanted to expand on stuff. It's a lot of the stuff, the same ingredients. There's a couple of new flavors in there, but it's the same ingredients. I think we've gotten better as a band, so it's just a better version of what we were already doing or the best version to date like of what we've been doing, Well, which I thought talked, was cool. Yeah, and you talked about the progression from album to album. Uh, if you listen to Sonor and Deprivation, it's faster. It's a lot faster than this and less melodic. Uh, you know, it is, you could argue whether it's heavier or not, but it is, it's a very heavy record. And what they, the progression from there to this album is that this album sounds more like a unified sound. It sounds more like an album that a band sat down to write, you know, to as an album as a whole, but also it is more melodic. It is a little bit slower in most places anyway, in tempo. Uh, and it definitely, it feels to me, which is why I picked it rather than Sonor and Deprivation, despite my mistake in the last episode. Um, it feels to me more like an album where, yeah, they focused on, okay, songs, let's focus on really great riffs and write in good songs and not worry about them being 10 minutes long or overly complex or anything right. like that. You know, let's just focus on the songs and the riffs. Um, and that's, I actually do hope. I think we probably are aligned in that that's where I do hope they continue to progress. I could well imagine, as I say, in like an album or two's time, them producing something like, say, Wolverine Blues, um, which, you know, is one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah. We did it on the show, certainly my favorite Entombed album. And I know these guys are Entombed fans. Uh, yeah, they're wearing Entombed t-shirts in half their <laughs> band shoots. Yeah. And the, the sound of the guitars on this album, I don't know if they're actually using Boss HM2s or, you know, something that just really, really sounds like it, an emulator or something maybe, but my goodness, what a thick, crunchy, treble-heavy guitar sound. I absolutely love it, but it is so Swedish. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, in a Kerrang! interview in 2019, the guitarist Eric Wagner talked about the Arizona theme, which you had mentioned a little bit earlier. He said, all of us have roots in Arizona. Many of us were born and raised there, and I feel like we don't get that much love. Uh, we have a lot of pride for Arizona. It's unique and different. It's cool to be able to wave the desert flag. There's other bands in Arizona for sure, but we've been doing pretty well, so it's nice to shed a light on the area, bring people's attention there. I feel like the desert is like a metal landscape. It's a theme that's ingrained in us musically and personally. And I think you see that in in some of their lyrics and even in some of the songwriting but that uh that theme is present for sure yeah i saw chase mason mention it fairly offhanded actually in an interview where he just said something like it's 100 degrees outside and it's like that for most of the year it's of course it's gonna have an effect right and there's a specific <laughs> song in this album that i feel like they they really hit on that uh and then one last interview with uh, thrasher mag in 2019 chase mason uh they were basically saying to him, the, the guitars are amazing live. The whole band nails it live. It sounds like the album. Is that the point when you're on stage or do you like to throw any twists into it? And he said, I like to play it pretty straight. I like it to sound like it is on the record, but even bigger. He said, there's nothing fancy about it. It's all about the riffs and just being heavy. Not much messing around. It's to the point. The songs are pretty short. We're writing things that are memorable. And he went on to say, which I thought was super interesting, 
I don't want to play for over 30 minutes ever. We yeah. always keep our set less than 30 minutes, no matter where our slot is on the show. I would rather people want more. I read, I, I know exactly which one that is. I read that same interview and yeah, I found that really interesting, especially because, and I posted this in our Facebook group uh, just before we started recording, but I would also put it in the show notes. I found on their Facebook page, they have a video of an entire set from uh, the end of last year at the well in Brooklyn on the Kerrang stage. It's really good. And it absolutely does sound like the record. I mean, yes, it's live and you can tell it's live, but they clearly work very hard to make the live sound basically replicate the record. Now, I know some people aren't into that and they'd rather have some improvising and what have you, but if you don't mind or if you even like it that way, you should absolutely check out this video because it is a blistering set. Uh, really, yeah, Fast and Furious. And I think it clocks in at like 28 minutes or something. It's uh, It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. 30 minutes or less. Like, get in, get out, leave them wanting more. That's pretty great. Yep. Although, I look forward to them eating their words if they actually do start headlining arenas and stuff. And you, <laughs> you can't do that and play for 30 minutes. Nobody will book you ever again if you do that. <laughs> no, but in this new uh, post-apocalypse world that we live in, who's to say even what that looks like, right? Uh, true, true. Who's to say arenas will ever book bands again, yeah. Or that it won't just all be like those festivals where everybody gets a certain slot and, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. But yeah, also, tr- you know, once they get three, four, five albums under their belt, like at some point, the set list has to expand, right? And it's easy to say that when you have, uh, you know... Two albums of, and an EP, yeah. Well, yeah. right, and at the time of the interview, one album, and they were about to put out their second one. So yeah, it's it's easy to, to say, we're going to play less than 30 minutes, but, you know, yeah. once you get that catalog up, <laughs> People are going to want to hear other stuff. Yeah. Uh, so this album, okay, so Deserted, it is 2019, uh, 10 songs for, uh, is it 40 minutes long, I think, the whole thing? So again, in that, again, that kind of Swedish death metal tradition of, you know, just not too many songs, not too long, uh, you know, again, as you say, get in, get out and leave people wanting more. Um, recorded at a studio, which I think is in Arizona, uh, which is run... Okay, so the co-producer of this album is a guy called Ryan Bram. He owns the studio, and he's a guitarist himself, and he played in that band that the bassist had before oh, there you go. <laughs> Before Gate River took off. Again, talking about, you know, incestuous uh, scenes. But I think it's a really well-produced record. I've already mentioned the guitar tone. I think the guitar sound is fantastic. I think the drums sound great on this album that's not like the 10 feet wide and recorded in a cave absolutely uh, the the only thing as crazy as it sounds the only sort of criticism of the sound of this album that i have if anything is that i can barely hear the bass which i mean you know in the swedish death metal style you don't really hear the bass much anyway because it's just generally following the guitars but i think it's a shame that uh he clearly is a talented bassist and you really just can't hear him in the mix. It's all a bit fuzzy. Yeah, and the longest song on the album is the first song. Is that the actual longest song? Good yeah, Lord. Yeah, I think the second <laughs> one, second closest ones uh, are five minutes. The first one's five minutes, 20 seconds. I think that is the longest song on the right. whole album. And there's only one other five-minute-plus song on there, yeah, and everything yeah. else is under five minutes. Some of them are under three minutes. I know. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think one of the things I like about this album is that it displays confidence from a, f- I mean, and these guys have clearly all been around a while. They've all played in lots of other bands. They've done lots of gigs. They've clearly all been playing for 10 years or more, but nevertheless, this is obviously the biggest band that any of them have been in, in terms of, Oh, actually we are now touring everywhere all the time, supporting big bands. You know, we're taking off. And this second album, I think displays a confidence that you don't often see in, uh, younger bands like that. And I, I think that's good. And that's what gives me hope for the future is that if they can keep that and sort of keep the idea of, okay, we know who we are and what we do. And now we just want to get better at it. As I say, that's why I hope that, uh, I have hope that future albums will be even better. Yeah, I agree with that. And you said the the production overall is really good in this album. And I agree with that as well. I think the bass thing is clearly a choice as opposed to a, a failing oh, sure. of, the, yeah. Yeah, of yeah. the production on, on any stretch, but you're right. There's, there's a big feel to this album that I think feeds into that confidence. Like there, these, a lot of these songs just feel big and they, there's a swagger to them that comes from a band that kind of knows what they're doing. And so to have that be on the second album, even though it's clear, they're still figuring some things out. They don't let that, that doesn't creep into the songs, you know, that, that sort of, um, uh, there's not no, being there's no it feels very assured. Yeah. yeah, there is no hesitance. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like there's any sense of doubt amongst them about like, oh, you know, is this really us? Is this sort of song that we should do? No, just bang. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like this is us right now. Yeah. And this is everything we've built to at this point. If that changes in the future, it changes in the future. But we're we're not uh we're not second guessing ourselves right now. This is who right. we are. And I, lots of my favorite bands are of that mind, you know, make albums like that where, yeah, they might change from album to album, but this is clearly what they're into right now. And I really yep. like that. So, all right, well, let's get into the album itself then. So let's start off with the opening track, track one, Deserted. I mean, a pretty good introduction for what you're going to get from this album, right? I mean, it, the the tone of it, super heavy, super crunchy. You feel that tone immediately, and there is a big weight, like, right out of the gate. So I feel like it, it, it sets a bar for expectations that keeps you there for the rest of the album. It, yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, that, that opening is proper doom. Uh, it's even got the sort of Sabbath, the, the Iomi-like trill on that opening guitar line. Uh, yeah, it's a lovely sort of slow headbanger. 
Um, some parts of this remind me of early Paradise Lost, actually. Do and that's Okay, thank you. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm not a Paradise Lost uh, expert or even, I would say, like a, a big fan overall. But there were multiple points on this album where I felt like, even in my limited experience with Paradise Lost, like, I was going to ask you, like, does this feel a little Paradise Lost? <laughs> so, yes, I'm glad that you said that. Yeah, yeah, no, so early Paradise Lost, obviously, because they are one of those bands who change with every album. Um, and the thing is that I don't recall seeing Paradise Lost mentioned ever at all by any of the band members in any of the interviews uh, that I trawled to sort of find out more about this band. But I do wonder, you know, maybe there's something there or maybe not. Maybe it's just coincidence because, you know, Paradise Lost were also influenced by a lot of the uh, death metal for the the early death metal movement bands. Yeah. So maybe it's just similar influences or something. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but it's it sounds great. I mean, obviously, as a huge Paradise Lost fan, I love the fact that some parts of it remind me <laughs> of Paradise Lost. Also, there is a reference in this in the lyrics of this first song to Rotten Soil right in the first verse. I am sure that that is an entombed reference. That is not something that you write by accident when you are a band influenced by the Swedish death metal sound, which I quite appreciate. Yeah, um, and, and lyrics, I pulled a, a bunch for, you know, different, and we could talk about the lyrics overall kind of as we go, but you know, in this one, it's lost when all has failed. We're left alone all by ourselves, cursed to survive in obscurity, bare and forsaken left in the darkness holding on. Um, so it's a pretty somber, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, it, it, which I wouldn't say any of their lyrics are, sort of upbeat, but uh, there are some that are more sort of um, despairing than yes. others, and some are more, like, aggressive uh, than others. And and the songs where they go with that sort of despair, um, there is kind of this never-ending kind of plodding feel to it, like an eventuality to it, and I think they capture that in this first song. That's a really good way of putting it. Despair versus aggression. I like that. Yeah, that's a really good way of describing the two types of song, uh, effectively, that they write. I mean, this is the post-apocalypse song, essentially. Yeah. Hence, the, you know, it's got that kind of that desert feel. It does feel very sort of baked and open and epic. Um, and yeah, it just... It f and the lyrics as well, obviously, back up that this is clearly a sort of post-apocalyptic feel. And that is despair, obviously. Um, I really like the fact that the the guitar solo that comes in at the end um, is essentially just like goes out towards the end of the song. Other than once that's done, I mean, it's not... Uh, it's not the sort of, you know, a blistering solo or anything. It's quite no. nice. Uh, but, it, you know, it's quite nice, quite melodic. But it it comes in about, what, two-thirds of the way through. Definitely, and then, yep. And then, then that's it. Apart from one reprise of the uh, chorus at the end, that's that's it right through to the end of the song. Um, just yeah, nothing I like but music. That. I Does like it, that too, because you would expect them to then play the whole song over again. Right. And, yeah. and, and probably it overstay its welcome a little bit. And the fact that it doesn't is a pleasant surprise. Also, it's kind of a traditional solo, which I kind of liked And in the solo work here. I mean, there's not a ton of soloing on this album, but you do get some very sort of traditional guitar solos and then some more sort of thrashy or death metal -y type of solos. And I like that they kind of mix it up a little bit. And this first solo is, is pretty traditional in the 
in the way that it sounds like they're it's not as you said it's not super fast it is melodic um it fits the tone of the song but it also uh it is very easy to kind of latch on to yeah yeah i do like how there's <clears throat> there's a uh a, th- a musical theme if you like running through this uh album quite a lot of the songs the middle eights are almost feel like a second tiny little song hidden inside the first um and then yeah they'll end with a very doomy each of them will end with some very doomy guitar line that then leads back into the regular song um and it reminds me actually of parts of typo in places uh-huh. and and i know that was something that you criticized typo for when we did that album but you know their tendency to just at four minutes okay now here's an entirely different song that we're just going to say is part two of this song um and and it's not and I, quite that blatant but there are elements of that in here which i really like well it's funny because i think what i struggled with with the typo stuff is it 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 was within those sort of two songs they were one that i really liked and one that i didn't so much <laughs> and that's where it struggled for me of of like oh i don't like where they went and it, it reminds me of um the one off metallica's most recent album halo on fire where the first two-thirds of the song are one of my favorite metallica songs of all time and then it goes and does something that ruins this the song for me you know two-thirds of the way through yeah. <laughs> and that's where i struggled with some of the typo stuff whereas here i feel like yeah they take some departures but they're still in that overall vein of the expectation that the song has set so it doesn't feel like you know it feels like we we maybe are on the shoulder of the road as opposed to completely taking any left or right hand turns there um at least that's the way i i kind of felt as i went through it so it was they weren't big enough departures to take me out of the song whereas i feel like some of the typo stuff was well, I don't think anything on this album is too much of a departure. I mean, if anything, that is one of my uh, criticisms of it, is that there are places where it's like, this could be any of the songs on this Same. album. Same, yep. Um, so, yeah, you know, sort of departing too much isn't something you really have to worry about. But, yeah, it is, as I say, I just, again, it's that kind of, it's not complex, but it's a nice bit of songwriting that you don't always see in extreme metal um, that I, yeah, that I quite like. So let's move on to track two then, and that is Puncture Wounds. minutes of mayhem or yep. rather two minutes and 47 seconds of mayhem yeah, not even three minutes long man <laughs> yeah this one uh you know more up tempo more thrashy 
in parts. I love the guitar wails before they dive into the full rhythm, and you hear that a couple times throughout the song. Um, and that's kind of cool. That's one of the things that I like about this band, and, and, and maybe I'm not describing it well when I say like it's there are elements that are more traditional, but that's the kind of stuff. Like They're not afraid to do stuff like that. Well, they're not afraid to break out the whammy bar. Yeah, dude. And like, and, and things that like, I, you know, there, there are eras of metal and, and certainly genres of metal where it becomes not cool, right. To do certain things. These, this yeah. isn't cool. This isn't metal. This isn't brutal. And as you said, you know, going back before about them kind of not caring what people think, I like that they will put elements in the songs that are, uh, I guess, considered a throwback, you know, because they're not, co- they're not as cool anymore to do, but they'll just work them in and, and they feel they add to the song. They don't yeah. to me. They they're all additive. Yeah, absolutely. I I had wailing guitar is absolutely in in my notes as well. It's the same. I love that opening. It's a you know good hard rocker, and that yep. wailing guitar is really atmospheric. And it's a real change of pace. This one from the first track as well. Much faster, much shorter. As you say, you know it is over really quickly. Um, but it's a really good song. And again, the middle eight riff is like a second tiny song hidden inside the first again. It's, uh, oh, and then it becomes that sort of that three note lead, uh, when it's finished, just that brilliant and straight into the end. Um, I think this might be what they opened that show, uh, that I, the video in Brooklyn, I think this might've been the show opener and you can absolutely see why it would be. And Matt Arabolo's drums, I think are, they're fantastic throughout the, album. I feel like he, for me, is the standout on this entire album. I, I think he's a tremendous drummer, but this song, the way that he controls tempo, the, the sort of uh, easing off the gas pedal and then hitting it hard again with, with some of the galloping pieces. It's just really, it's just really great. He does a lot of great work on this song and in the span of two minutes and 47 seconds, it, uh, it jumped out at me. Yeah, it's not a lot of time for anybody to work with. Um, actually, uh, talking about production, here's a funny thing. In that interview that I read with uh, Arabolo, he says that apparently when they're making the demos, uh, when they br- when they Chase and um, Eric Wagner use a drum machine and they program uh, a drum machine and that's what they sort of bring to the demos, he's not involved in them at all. But then he you know, listens to what they've done on the drum machine and does his own thing. But he said, like, they're so good at programming drum parts that there are songs where he's literally heard the demo and gone, yep, yeah, that's exactly how I'd play it. I'll just play that. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, short, sharp. It is, it is. But like I say, short, sharp song, really good. Uh, I love a good track too that's a proper rocker that sort of helps propel because the first opening track, you know, can sometimes be, you can be a bit epic, you know, this is setting up the album. This is how we're going to go. But if you do that, I think you have to have a track two that then goes, okay, and now we're here to rock and then kind of pushes you forward through the rest of the album. And I think this track absolutely does that. I agree with you. And I think that, you know, we talk so much about the opening track and the closing track, right? About how you introduce and how you close out an album. But it's really the one-two punch of tracks one and two, and my dog is making your dog another, agrees. Uh, yeah, he's, he's very. He's he was basically like, yes, track two. I've been trying to tell you for years. It's track two that is the standout. But it is that whole thing of what does the second track do, and and you really only have those two tracks to set the expectations for the album. 
So yeah. whatever you don't deliver in the first track, you better deliver in the second one in order to frame what the rest of the album is going to bring you. And I think this does that perfectly. Yeah. Well, and to grab people also, yeah, is it, you know, you've sure. got, you've got those two tracks, I think to grab, I mean, again, these days when it's so easy to just skip ahead and click around and play different tracks, maybe not so much, but certainly in the era when we all bought records and CDs and tapes and stuff. Yeah. If your first two tracks didn't grab your listener, you probably lost them. You know, a lot of people would just go, yeah, no, this isn't for me. Um, oh, absolutely. I think that's, that's the majority because we talk all the time too about like really giving an album it's due giving it a few lessons really getting to form an opinion but we know that that's that's the exception to the rule for most people a a lot of people will give it especially in this era where you can just get a track at a time or everything's a playlist or and and the whole idea of albums isn't even necessarily the same anymore people don't give you a, a long leash before they're done no absolutely well and i will forgive also albums that go a bit saggy in the middle uh, if those first two, maybe three tracks are enough, you know, if they're strong enough to really make me go fucking hell, then I will forgive, you know, a, a flabby middle as long as it ends well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, all right, well, let's move on to track two then. And that is From the Ashes. Yes, track three. And so uh, four minutes this time around. This one, to me, immediately reminded me of Amonomarth, uh, the Yams Viking oh, episode right. that we did. Yeah, yeah. Just that sort of like uh, that intro, that riff at the intro, very Amonomarth, but also a little bit of Paradise Lost. And this is where I said maybe a little Paradise Lost. And I, I put a question mark there because it's it's the almost like distant echoey guitars that feel like they're a few steps back that reminded me of paradise loss, almost like that the, the, the atmosphere that they're adding to the song felt a little paradise lost to me. Um, but I, the main riff, that driving riff to me is much more my style. And that's the kind of hook that I'm like, yep, this is exactly in my wheelhouse. This is exactly, you know, <laughs> this fits exactly the kind of stuff I like to listen to. So for me, it was, not that I didn't like the first two songs. In fact, I think it's a great one-two punch. And then this one here kind of solidified, like, yeah, I'm I'm digging this album. Yeah. They uh, regard this one, or at least Chase does, does in an interview that I read, as the kind of, this is the one for the European festival crowd. Um, there you go. Which I thought was an interesting way of, like, framing a track. But it, you can absolutely see why it is. Yeah, it's very Doom, 
but it's got a groove. It's got a bit of groove in it. And I did mention when I said we were doing this album last time that there are elements of groove in this album, even though it's, uh, you know, it is very firmly a death metal record. And a lot of that, I gather, comes from the drummer, actually. It comes from Matt Arabolo. Uh, he's, he's into his groove. For and sure. And I think, it, it, you know, it, that comes across. Um, I agree. I love the atmospheric lead. Uh, on the, 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 actually the lead that plays under the vocals on the chorus as well, which let's be honest is most of the song. Right. Uh, it, it really works for me. I love that. Um, I love that again, guitar wailing. I love the descending guitar well that goes into that half time middle eight. That's really doom. But here's the funny thing. Uh, I thought that in the middle eight, the lead sounded more like my dying bride than paradise lost who okay. obviously, you know, kind of in the same ballpark, but I, I didn't get a specifically PL vibe off of this, but there were elements of it that I was thought, I, I could see that on a My Damn Bride album. Well, um, let's be fair, I could completely be confusing the two uh, in my reference as possible. <laughs> to, to that as well. <laughs> I, I could have simply wrote, maybe one of Anthony's bands in this <laughs> yes. section? Like that's, It was like, I know it's one of the bands that he loves that we listened to that were doomy, uh, that it... it, it reminded me of here but yeah it, those two elements together that sort of a monomarth you know viking uh driving vibe and then a little bit of that atmosphere that that doomy atmosphere too i think is really uh presents something different than the first two songs presented you yeah and from a lyrical standpoint whereas you know we talked about deserted being very despair this one is the more aggressive of uh you know the, the lyrics oh, yeah. are yeah, liberated yeah. accelerating forward shedding weight that brings us down, rising slowly from the ashes, see the light, walk through the flames. You know, that that sort of reborn uh, fighting and persevering sort of uh, mentality there. The lyrics fit perfectly with the vibe of the song, which is very much a driving forward sort of thing. Yeah. Good video to this one as well, actually, with uh, Nate Garrett was still in the band um, when they made this video, and it's a good one. Here's an interesting thing about this. The lines at the end... Uh, right at the end where he, uh, the sweet release stronger than ever lines, that's a completely different riff, but it sounds, it has the same basis as uh -huh. the main riff and as the opening. So, and it took me a few listens to go, wait a minute, that's not the same riff. So, you know, obviously most bands, most songs, you will return to your opening riff to sort of, you know, to play out that last section. But here it's like I say, it's similar same tempo, uses the same basic notes, but it's not the same. Uh, and it's got double kick drums underneath it. I just think that's a really nice, clever bit of songwriting. It's it's close enough to sound familiar, so it doesn't throw you out of the track, but it's different enough to catch your attention. Uh, and if you are listening, go, oh, okay, that's interesting. Just yeah. for me, anyway. I mean, <laughs> but that's, that's how I listen to music, apparently. Um, but yeah, it's a really good track. Uh, as you say, like just solidifies after the one-two punch of the first two tracks, uh, really solidifies that this is an album, you know, worth listening to. If you like those first two tracks, right. then you're going to like this third as well. Uh, and that leads into track four, Ruthless.
I really like the song. Um, I love the drums on this song. It, this is just a crusher. Like this, this, the, the guitar tone, the, I mean, you can feel it on this song and just this building sort of repeating crushing riff. Uh, and when he screams war, you know, just all of that together just feels really super heavy. Yeah. I, I'm a sucker for rising semitone chord progressions like we get on this one. So I love it. It's a real grind, similar yes, to the opening grind. track. Um, but again, groove when it speeds up, you know, there's a bit of groove in it. Another very short track. Um, no solos, not even any lead lines. The entire track is just riffage. And I think it might be the only track on the album where that's the case, where it is nothing just but rhythm riffs for the entire song. Um, and lyrically, this, and this may be where we differ, I pegged this as one of the ones uh, talking about his drug experiences because in an interview uh, that I read with him, he talked about how when he was an addict, like all addicts, inevitably, he you know turned to crime. Um, yep. and, uh, you know, and he, he said he didn't do anything hor- terribly horrible, thank goodness, but nevertheless, you know, he was boosting shit and hustling and what have you to get his next fix. And so I read these lyrics very much as, oh, okay, this is from that perspective. This wasn't the song in particular that I thought was speaking to his former addiction, but certainly as, as kind of a side effect of his addiction, that makes perfect sense, uh, in terms of these lyrics here. And, yeah. uh, and yet, this is almost a more efficient version of the first song on the album, right? I mean, this is a this is three minutes and thirty seven seconds versus five minutes and twenty seconds. And as you said, um, sort of trimmed. Uh, you don't have the solos here, but it is that grinding, crushing, you know, feel to it. And to me, I, I not that the first song is a bad song, but I, I feel like this is a stronger sure. uh, song. It's a tighter song. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Tighter. Yeah. And it's a proper, it is a proper horns in the air, head down, slow headbang job. Yep. You can just, you can picture the arms all moving forward in time, you know? <laughs> well, for sure. And, and you can, I think with a lot of the songs on this album, like you can see how they would play great live, you know, yeah. just really fist in the air, banging your head, just heavy as all get out, really crushing stuff. Yeah. Well, and like I said, I'll put a link to that um, uh, live video on Facebook in the show notes. And yeah, you you can see that that is the case. You know, there's a lot of these songs that clearly just work very well live. Uh, And considering that it wasn't the first album where they've honed all the songs, as you said before, you know, uh, and it's just their entire set. I think that makes it all the more impressive that they work. They do work so well live. So move on to track five, Everlasting.
This one has a little Seasons in the Abyss flavor to it. Oh, I th- I thought of it as uh, Cthulhu Mythos. Oh, definitely. I, from a lyrical standpoint, absolutely. Um, oh, sorry. You t- you meant li- you meant musically. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> because the uh, the lyrics certainly it is ageless, immortal soul devourer. It burns forever, unyielding light that never fades out. Oh, yeah, definitely a, a, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a nod to the mythos. But I feel like seasons in the abyss in terms of the the sort of atmospheric qualities of it. It reminds me very much of of the uh, beginning and end of seasons in the abyss oh, um, okay. from Slayer's album of the same name. Yeah. I mean, this one's got a real groove right from the opening, which I do like. Uh, but not my favorite song on the album, because if you can spot the chorus, I will give you a cookie, because I'll be damned if I can. Uh, and I think that lets it down. It, it, it is, ironically, I think this is the kind of song that Eric Wagner said he was trying deliberately not to write, uh-huh. which is those very linear here's a riff, here's another riff, here's another riff, and another one, type of death metal. Um, And that is kind of what this is like. It's just riff after riff after riff. There are some nice doomy lead lines in it, but there's not really something that you can grab hold of. Um, And, you know, that's not always a bad thing, but I think here, for this kind of record, on for this band, it doesn't, nothing stands out. I don't think it quite works as well. It's the first track on the album where I'm like, eh, could kind of skip it. Well, and I mean, this is probably a good place for me to point out that I, uh, of every lyric on this entire album, the word war is the only word that I understood in any of the songs uh, for all of these things. Like, um, which, and it's funny to me in reading some of those interviews with Chase Mason, he's like, yeah, the lyrics are the last thing that I even think about and that I write. Like he, he has certainly downplayed the um, importance of of the lyrics to the songs that they make continually going back to the notion of like, it needs to be heavy. It's all about the riffs. It's all about the music. It's all about like, he has downplayed the the whole notion of lyrics in several interviews that I read from them. And maybe he's overplaying that hand when they're, you know, having an interview or, or maybe it's being self-conscious about his own lyrics. Who the hell knows? But I don't understand a word this dude is saying like the entire, which I'm assuming is by design. Um, except for the word war in the previous song that we just talked about. So it, every it is, lyric that I pulled, I had to go look up. Yeah. It is very much that voice as instrument kind of, uh, start is napalm death, you know? Um, and I mean, that's a criticism that I do have of napalm death at times as well. I love a bit of napalm death. Um, you know, I love Barney, but sometimes it's a bit like, I wish I actually understood what you were saying. <laughs> You well, know, I, and I wish. also feel like there's many words that aren't even fully enunciated. Like oh, even, even true. in the yeah, growl, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. like if, you know, you take a, a word like unyielding and you might get un, unye and yeah. that's the whole, <laughs> yeah. and then I'm like, what the fuck word is that? Okay. Oh, it's unyielding. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, you did not say unyielding in that. That's, um, that's in so that. true. <laughs> and so it's like you get a syllable from each word and then you read it and it's like uh supercalifragilisticexpialidocious i'm like really that's what you were saying right there because <laughs> yeah. you said you said ooh yeah and that's supercalif okay good um, but that but that's a, that's very common in in death and black metal uh you know i mean i i agree with you i i do wish you know compare to uh lg petrov from entombed who you know you may not you may love or hate his vocal style but you can map the words to the lyrics 
you know, you can tell he is pronouncing every syllable, whereas right. there are, yeah, absolutely grind, and, death, and black metal vocalists who, who do not. And just on the sort of spectrum of metal vocals that I that are pleasing to my ears, this is like one step removed from full-on Cookie Monster. I can't, like... I can I can deal with these and I can I can almost like them in some areas, but it's it's close to that end of the spectrum that really doesn't do it for me. And it, it is the music on this album that continues to bring me. It's the hooks, it's the yeah. it's the grooves, it's the stuff like that. But yeah, um, real well, tough time I, figuring out what the words were on this one. I think what separates it, and I've talked about this before. I know. I think what separates it is that he is clearly projecting, and it does sound like he is shouting the growl um i mean obviously he's doing it in a way that isn't going to blow out his voice right but you you know it feels like it's got that aggressive shout to it rather than the cookie monster which kind of feels almost like there's no air escaping thank um, you yeah no that's a perfect way to describe it and the shout is like that's the piece that i'm like okay i can deal with this right it's the it, when it when it does feel like there's no air escaping like i can't it just doesn't it just doesn't hook me in any way yeah, I mean, I, I'm much the same, with a, with a, some exceptions, but for the most part, I will always, as I've said before, I will always prefer a shouter over a pure, as you say, like Cookie Monster-style growl. Um, but, you know, Chuck Billy does that that style of growl, and we love Chuck. So, like I say, there are always exceptions. Um, but, yeah, on, on this, on some tracks and on this track, I think that vocal style doesn't really do it any favours. I also think there's some... Just to get really, you know, sort of picky, uh, I think it's weird that there is no discernible chorus in this song. Like, well, there is, but it's musical. There are two main lead line sections, a uh, uh, minute 30 and three minutes 20. They're the most memorable thing in the song, but they have no lyrics. Um, right, and a minute and, 30 is the seasons in the abyss part that I was, uh, right. was sort of referring to, yeah. I personally would have put lyrics over those pieces and made them the chorus but you know obviously that's that just could me. even have been a place to do like spoken word lyrics you know because it was because it's ah, it has that yeah. sort of dreamy quality to it um but yeah I, again that's me projecting my own you know <laughs> <laughs> what i had what i might want to, to do with the song but uh yeah. but yeah i mean even just for that that sort of slayer touch point alone it it the song held some interest for me for sure yeah it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not bad, but it is definitely, it's sort of the first, you know, weak song on the album, really, for me. Um, but redeemed by Traxit, which is Barbaric Pleasures. A song about banging. Indeed. <laughs> There's no mistaking that. <laughs> the most appropriate lyrics on 
this song or the first three lines. We escape together. <laughs> life starts behind closed doors, finding our peace. That's the, I do like the line, nothing but sweat between us. I, that just, <laughs> yes. that's, that's a genuinely that good line. That typo negative to me. Uh, oh, you know, you're right. It does, doesn't it? Maybe that's why I like it. <laughs> yeah, because it's super cheese, right? Um, and I would say of all the lyrics on this album, this is the cheesiest group of lyrics on this uh entire album but uh yeah but in terms of a contrast to the previous song i mean this song's two minutes 55 seconds long um which i think fits the the theme of the song as well yeah yeah i think this is one where the the lyrics are i mean you're right they are a bit cheesy but they're actually one of the best things about the song musically uh i don't think it lives up to the lyrics um the riffs aren't quite as memorable um, I do like there's a halftime lead harmony that comes in just before two minutes. More of that, please. I really like that. Um, but the rest of it, yeah, I just think musically it doesn't quite, you know, live up to the the promise. But it's another short one. It's less than three minutes. Uh, you know, <laughs> I was going to say bang in, bang out. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's you subliminal you reading of the lyrics. I did, it. I did. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear uh but yeah it's not a bad again not a bad song but i think it you know it it is part of that saggy middle that you have in this album uh it which is, is a shame. But what it doesn't do is continue the same exact theme of the song before it which is where a lot of the sort of saggy middles that we deals where you can't tell the difference between a couple of those middle songs and i i do feel like they are different enough um they're just not of the same punch as the songs around them yeah, that's true, actually. But for me, that does happen on this album, but not for a couple of tracks' time. Uh, but okay. you're right, here, here it doesn't, yeah. Well, let's, let's move on to track seven, Sweltering Madness. I mean, this to me was the living in the desert song, right? Just oh, the, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the song itself is very unrelenting and very sort of plotting. Um, it reminds me of that twilight zone episode where the, where it, it's the two women in the apartment and like the sun is going to destroy everything. Do you remember that episode of the twilight zone? And then it turns out uh, that she had a fever the whole time. And actually they're in a, a world where it's freezing and the earth is freezing. Um, I forget. I do what, not I'll, remember I'll, I'll that one. I'll have to no. look it up. I'll have to look up the title of that episode. But it was, uh, yeah, it's just like this 
you know, it does. The lyrics are even in the darkness, there is no shade, uh, sanity in dissipating, simmering in hellish heat, deviant obsessions, rambling and raving mad, but just yeah. like the, the, the sweltering heat driving you insane. Yeah, cracked and broken, rotten, dried up corpses yeah. lay in the dirt. I mean, there's no mistake in yeah, no. what this song's and, about. And there's kind of Slayer-esque solos in this song that I think add a little touch of chaos to it, you know, a little touch of madness to it in in the the type of solos. Very different solo, I think, than what you hear on the opening song of the album, which felt a yeah. little bit more traditional. This one's a little more uh, chaotic. Yeah, it is, but it's also kind of buried in the mix, and I'm sure that's deliberate. So it kind of, and I, I think that adds to the atmosphere because it I sounds too, like it's, kind it's of like coming. everything blending together, and and you you know everything sort of um, not making sense anymore. You know, well, to me, it was that it sounded like it was coming from somewhere across behind a sand dune or something. You know, it was like oh, interesting. Yeah, being you're hearing it being played in the distance. Um, but yeah, I, I like this track. This is a, you know, back to the good stuff on the album, I think. Uh, you know, Proper Doom, another slow headbanger. Longest track on the album after the opener. This is the one that we were talking about before. Yep. Um, and opens with the chorus riff, which, you know, again, is a very mainstream rock thing to do. Um, uh, it does need it, though, because it's a full minute before the main riff and the lyrics start. Right. You know, like, like I said, Proper Doom. For some reason... The bit of this song that I always remember is when he shouts burnt shell, uh, which again, you know, are the only lyrics you can really make out if you know what he's saying on the, on the track. But for some reason, even from the very first listen before I knew what the lyrics were, the way he delivers though, that line the, uh, and the music that goes along with them, that was always the bit that stuck in my mind about this song. I don't know yeah. why. Um, but yeah, it's uh, like I say, I think this is a return to the good stuff on the album, this one. Um, lyrically, it's good. Musically, it's good. It's got that lovely chugging middle eight uh, around three minutes, 20. Um, yeah, it's it's a good one, solid. And he's followed by track eight, Boiled Over. This the beginning of the song almost feels like a Dio era Black Sabbath intro to me. Oh yeah, and I wish they would have kept with it because that's my favorite part of the song. Which just uh, my favorite part is how the song starts. Yeah, it's I. Yeah, it it keeps the slow pace still on the hot desert theme. Um, it's got a bit of a groove. I mean, musically, I think this is actually better than track seven. Track seven, as I say, was good, but I think this is actually better musically. Um, that lead line is a corker. It really is very atmospheric, very doomy. Um, 
And you've got like, again, in the middle, there's like a tiny song within a song. You've got a riff and a lyric structure there in the middle eight that is never repeated again, but it doesn't sound like a bridge. Very, you know, odd choice, but works well, I think. Um, and I love the messing with the different channels with those stop-start guitars at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, this nice. was the one I thought maybe was a nod to his uh, former heroin use. Oh, okay. Oh, right. It waits and for I me. And I think you can read the slowly. lyrics either to, yeah, yeah. to you know a couple of different ways, but this was the one I, I felt like was kind of uh, you know um, my self restraint is set ablaze. It burns my skin from the inside. Just well, consumed by dread, I let it burn. Like there's uh, yeah, lay let your body melt away. Do you know, I hadn't even made that connection, but you're absolutely right. Now that I read the lyrics i'm looking at them right now as you say that it actually seems quite clear yes I, I i agree with you i think this is clearly about the addiction but i think to his point like maybe the earlier stuff on their first album was a little more laden with that stuff whereas this one i feel like they hit on a variety of topics on this album definitely not you know one theme yeah. running through well and i read an interview with him where he said look you know it was a part of my life a big part of my life you know it almost killed me of course it's going to be it's always there. It's always going to be a part of the lyrics that I write. Uh, but that, yes, he had tried to get away from it on this album compared to the first, which has a lot more blatant uh, stuff about addiction and what have you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think it succeeded. As I say, it's a good song, that one. Mm, and the, right. And then track nine, In Chains. <laughs> And I think this one suffers. This is the one where I think it sounds too much like the similar, like the previous song. I think it really suffers from being of a similar tempo, basically in the same key. Like as a song in and of itself, it's pretty good. And yeah. if it was elsewhere on the album, I think it would fare better. Um, but it is too easy. And I've done it listening to this album where I've just completely missed the switch the from track switched, eight to yeah. track nine. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very fair criticism, I think, of this song. And, and I think you're right. If it had been somewhere else in the lineup, it might have felt more different. Um, it's got a good groove. The drums are fantastic on this song. Uh, to me, again, a little some little splashes of Slayer uh, in this one. But following the previous song, it just doesn't stand out as much as it could. Yeah. Is the Slayer bitch that you're talking about, is that that three-tone guitar lead that starts yeah. each chorus line? Yeah, same. It's exactly the bit that I picked out as well. <laughs> it's um, my favorite and, part and of the song. Maybe not just Slayer, right? But but that's what it brings to mind immediately yeah. for me. And then um, from a lyrical standpoint, I, I mean, I didn't even caption. Let's see. 
manipulated to serve the master brand of the savior. Blindly we keep, uh, behold the witness eyes blind to faith, seeing all the madness in the killer's face. This one could also potentially be about former drug use. Um, it could, but it could also be about organized religion. I was also going to say that's yeah. the, that's the flip a coin that could also be about, uh, organized religion yeah well and the fact that it could be about either of those things is probably is its own theme yeah (laughs) yeah yeah for sure uh yeah Um, so so again even though he says like that you know that the lyrics are the last thing he wrote and and even though i struggle to understand a lot of what he's saying on the album when you go and look at the actual lyrics like there is some good stuff to dig into in the lyrics of some of these songs for sure I I agree. I actually, I do wish that he would be a bit more articulated in his lyric style, in his vocal style, just because some of these lyrics are really good. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if you could hear them a bit more, I think it wouldn't be a bad thing. But hey, I'm a traditionalist. Yep. (laughs) All right. Track 10 then. Album Closer. Absence of Light. this is another one that I I think has some good lyrics to it. And to me is just about depression and, you know, kind of spiraling absence of feeling absence of light soaking in the heartache, crumbling under the weight, you know, death is calling out, falling backwards into the depths of mental anguish defeated. I'm letting go like that. That seems pretty, pretty straightforward in what he's talking about there. But, I feel like this, the lyrics are very much in tune with the somber, the despair. Like we talked about despair versus aggression. This is a despair song to me. And I think the lyrics and the music both are driving at that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, This is one that feels like very early Paradise Lost again to me. I could absolutely see this as a closer on one of PL's early albums. Um, not vocally, you know, although maybe cause they did do a bit of death growl stuff early, in the early days, but musically, I, you know, you could put this on an early PL album and it would not sound out of place at all. Uh, very epic feel to that opening riff and lead, uh, the lead harmony that comes in at about two minutes. That again, feels a bit my dying bride. Um, I love the guitars dropping out on that final verse. That's yep. a really nice touch. Lovely bit of dynamics. Um, yeah, it's, it's a suitable, we talk obviously a lot about 
whether something feels like a closing track. And I think this absolutely does. It feels like the album is coming to an end. It has that suitably final funereal feel to it. Um, yeah, really, really good song, I think, and a great closer to the album. Here's a weird thing, though. As it fades out, and you'll only hear this if you're listening on headphones or you crank up the volume really loud, as it fades out, literally 15 seconds from the end, suddenly there's some keyboards. Yes. Like, really low in the mix, barely audible. Keyboards with a question mark on there, but yeah. you can, yeah. <laughs> Which, again, the whole doomy, kind of gothic-y, you know, there there are elements in there. And, and that, I think, goes back to this notion that they're not afraid to kind of sprinkle in these elements that ultimately as a whole make them stand out from the pack. Yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder what would this song and even maybe some other songs on this album have sounded like if they had a bit of keyboard in there, you know, yeah. and I'm not talking seventh son of a seventh son, you know, bright, <laughs> loud synths or something, but something more like how typo used keyboards as, yeah. you know, kind of a, a quiet bed, just kind of creeping underneath the music throughout the album. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I know you if, could almost remix this album with those elements added and get a much more doomy. Yeah. You know, it, it would be interesting. But but the fact that they will just put a little bit in there and it's kind of goes back to his whole thing of like leave people wanting more, right? Like it, it gives yeah, you yeah. something to think on for the song of like, huh, that'd be interesting. I wonder if they w- could have explored that more. Um, and that's kind of the sense I'm left with as I listen to this album of like, it does feel like an album that rewards multiple listens. And most of the songs on the album give you something to contemplate from a musical standpoint. And I really like that, even though there are a couple songs that maybe blend together a little bit. Uh, I enjoyed this album much more than I anticipated that I would after my first listen. Like yeah. I liked the heavy elements. I struggled with the the vocal uh, approach on the album, but I kept getting more out of it, and the hooks kept getting stronger every time around. Yeah, it absolutely benefits from familiarity uh, because like practically every song is in the same key. The guitar tone never changes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the only thing you have to differentiate them is the tempo and the riffs. Uh, and so having that familiarity of expectation that comes along with hearing those riffs, I think really, you know, is to the good, really benefits uh, listening to the album. And yeah, as I said before, it's not a perfect album by any means, but it's I do like it a lot. And like I say, it absolutely puts them on my radar of, OK, I want to see what they do next. You know, will they have some more keyboards, maybe, or will they focus more on memorable groovy riffs or you know you just you can't tell um and i'll be really interested to see what that is because i hope as i say that the next album or maybe the album after that could be something that absolutely blows me away and i I really look forward to that yeah one thing to note there was a bonus track on this album uh depending on what version you got and it's called anxiety and you can find that on youtube and listen to it it uh it it is pretty up-tempo and uh, definitely fits in with this other stuff, but I'm not sure what version of the album that it actually was a bonus track on. Maybe it was a pre-order thing or something. I don't know. 
Uh, could have been. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that. I'd, my version certainly doesn't have that on it, but I'll go and have a look up for it on YouTube. Maybe I'll put that in the show notes as well. Alrighty. So that was that album. Uh, that was an episode. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you what your pick is, what our homework is for the next episode. But before I do, let me remind everybody once again to uh, please spread the word about the show. Uh, tell your friends, rate us on Apple Podcasts and now Google Podcasts as well. Um, and of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out, where you will get many more recommendations of new music just like this. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. And of course, that's where you'll also find an archive of all the previous episodes. So, Brian, come on. What are we going to do next time, then? I have one question for our audience, Anthony. Is this going to be folks like coffee? We are going to be listening to the Death Album from Death Clock for our next episode. Oh, wow. See, I was just about to say, is this going to be another reference that I don't get? And it it was. (laughs) I will give you the link to the YouTube video that is the Duncan Hills Death Clock jingle that begins with that very question. Um, and was my first experience with Metalocalypse, the amazing show that used to be on Adult Swim that went five seasons, I believe. The brainchild of Brendan Small, who also uh, is responsible for things like, well, he was part of Dr. Katz. Uh, actually, he wasn't part of Dr. Katz. He was part of Home Movies and uh, worked with the same crew that worked on Dr. Katz and stuff like that. He was part of those shows during the early 2000s. And then obviously is went on to do metalocalypse and um, is absolutely an amazing musician who created this entire band. And if you've never watched that show as a metal fan, you owe it to yourself to go back and watch that show. It is a gold mine of just hilarity. And the band that was created for that show is death clock, which is really mostly Brendan small, but also Gene Hoagland on drums. Oh, wow. And so what he did was after the show started, there was a lot of songs that were featured in the show and became full songs for an album that was put out. And there was eventually three albums put out by uh, Death Clock. But this first album, the Death Album, is really, I think, the standout of all of them. Um, There's multiple versions of it, but we'll be listening to sort of the standard release uh, for this one. And it is, uh, it's going to be a great discussion about this album for sure. I have never heard. I mean, I know what uh, Metalocalypse is, but I've never seen an episode. Oh my god! And I have heard of Death Clock in relation to Metalocalypse, but I've never heard a single song that I'm aware of. So this is going to be very interesting. Oh, it will be very interesting, and it will be <laughs> a great discussion. Um, just for what this album is doing and what death clock is. And I just cannot wait to dig into this. And uh, I don't want to overhype the album, but I really, really dig this album. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, look, I could listen to Gene Hoagland play drums all day long. So, I mean, that's already a bonus point for me. Oh yeah. And he is incredible. He actually works with Brendan small on all of his, he does another project called Galacticron, I think, uh, which is more of a sci-fi 
uh, sort of a thing. Get away. This, this was more <laughs> of a death metal uh, sort of take, but also he works with Gene Hoagland on that and uh, is, is fantastic. He's like, it's like his go-to drummer. I think Hoagland's been on all of the uh, Death Clock albums. Fantastic. All right. Well, brilliant. I look forward to that then. And uh, yeah, you know, hopefully we'll be able to record that a little bit sooner than we managed to get this one out. Uh, but we'll, who knows what the world's going to look like in three or four weeks time. So <laughs> don't hold us to that, please. <laughs> I know, right? But in the meantime, take care of yourselves for God's sake. Be safe, stay well, and keep thrashing. See you next time. <laughs>